I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette and Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Get Back to the Beatles. My name is Chachi LaPrette, and it's a pleasure to have you with us. We are originating out of Boston, Massachusetts. I've been the host of New, of New England's Breakfast with the Beatles for many, many years, 20 to 25 years or so. We broadcast in Boston, throughout Massachusetts, Maine, and New Hampshire. And I have the pleasure of always welcoming uh, my co-host and vice versa. I'm his co-host. He's my co-host. He's the Beatles professor at Suffolk University, David Gallant. How are you, sir? Chachi, I'm doing great. And, uh, you know, it was confirmed about a month ago that uh, the university and, and God willing uh, was willing that I'll be teaching Beatles again this fall. And this is year number 16. So, um, wow. Uh, here we go. Here we go again. And uh, it is never out of style. It is never out of fashion. And um, I'm so glad that uh, we're here today to do this uh, podcast. And, uh, of course, Chachi, we are welcoming back a very special guest we have had in the past. We have. And you are sweet little 16 with 16 years of teaching the freshman students at Suffolk University in Boston, Massachusetts. And, David, um, refresh my memory. We, we both saw Paul McCartney a few weeks ago, right? You were there, right? Uh, I was I was there. And uh, I was I was actually uh, sitting uh, uh, on one side, my lovely wife, and on the other side, our good friend, Eric Tavros. Uh, we were there in the, uh, uh, as they, as they bill it itself, um, America's uh, most beloved ballpark, Fenway Park. And uh, Sir Paul was in, was in fine form. And so it was a fantastic show. And of course, put us all in that, uh, in that good feeling yet again. It was a great show. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I thought he was in good form. Three hours, just about no intermission and not bad for a man on the verge of 80 years old at the time. So uh, it was a lot of fun to have Paul back. And in that very same week, we had Ringo in Boston as well. And so we were able to see Ringo before his tour was once again sidelined by COVID. Yes, actually, that was just pulled away from me because I was hoping to catch him as he came back around about a week and a half or so after Boston. He was going to hit Providence. And that's just when things went uh, went south. But I believe he has rescheduled for the fall. So maybe with any luck, I might be able to get down there and have a few students go to see him in Providence. And it's a but, great venue there at that uh, at that performance venue anyway. It is a great venue. And I have friends on Ringo's tour and they always come out and say hello uh, before the show. None of them did for this one. <laughs> the 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 backstage was hermetically sealed, but nonetheless, mm. Edgar Winter and Steve Lukather still mm. uh, contracted COVID. So we wish them all well. But we have a great guest today. This is actually part two of our conversation. His was such a compelling story. Uh, it comes under the uh, the title of My Beatles Story. And his his was such a compelling one. We couldn't get it all in in the first uh, podcast, and it took a while, but we got him back, and he's uh, a dear friend, good guy, uh, the great Dan Hartman. How you doing, my friend? Uh, Tom Hartman, what am I saying? You know, Dan Hartman is a disco star when I was younger. I don't know if you know that, Professor, so I might, I might have confused that. <laughs> I think he also had a couple of singles. It was a Dan Hartman who had a couple of singles as well. Out of and, and yeah, I think there was another one who was a TV star, but nonetheless... Tom, I sincerely apologize for mixing up his first name. And there he is, Tom Hartman. Where are you broadcasting from, sir? 
We're I'm down in Boca Raton, Florida, where where I have a house. We have a, our our house has been here for about 28 years now. So um, even though I was born and semi-raised in St. Louis during that whole Beatle time and Abbey Road time, uh, in 75, I moved down to to Florida and finished um, school at University of Miami. And then, you know, I know this stuff. Somebody asked me, um, somebody asked me if I thought I could write a, a jingle. And um, the, it was an ad agency and they, you know, they, they had a couple clients that needed music. And um, I just thought of it as, I, I never thought of it as, oh, I got to write something about we're open till 10 and we have the best prices. I thought, no, 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 I don't want to sing about stuff like that. I'm going to make little mini pop records and you guys can have the voiceover, do all that stuff, the hard info. And I'm just going to do stuff people can remember. So we had one for Chris Everett's uh, polo club down here in Palm Beach. And, um, you know, like the line was, the signature line was, home is where the heart is. So I said, okay, I'm going to do a song. I hate to use the word jingle. It's a song for advertising. It's called Home is Where the Heart Is. It's not going to say anything about the Palm Beach polo club. None of that. None of of it. And uh, it just... My kind of semi-career down here with that took off. And, uh, you know, we had all these things on the air that sounded like little records until the to the voiceover came in. So I had a ball. It was like, you know, they would come and they go, well, could you do one for some something called whatever? And I'd say, yeah, what's the line? And they tell me the line. And I'd go, yeah, that should go like this. And they went, I love that. And next thing I know, I'm in the studio doing that. So I did it for quite a, a bunch of years down here. It ended up doing, um, getting a chance to do one for Blockbuster Video nationally. And uh, I was up against about four or five other music houses from New York and Seattle and all over. And, um, you know, I got it. And uh, it pretty much, I was... I was literally in the control room when I was recording the vocals. The vocalists were outside and the, the guy from the agency was such a cool music guy. And he said, what are you doing? This big kind of gruff guy. And I said, I'm recording the vocals, Rich. Come on. He goes, get your ass out there. And I said, well, they don't need me to sing on this. There's like four great singers out there. And he said, Tom, listen to me, get out and sing. And I made close to like 38 thousand dollars for singing a chorus a harmony part that said all the hits all the time that's all i did 38 grand and that's how we bought our house so i've been blessed since years (laughs) (laughs) well good for you congrats i'm so glad Hey, now, David, we're having trouble hearing. Yeah, okay, can, yeah. Can, can you hear me? Can yeah, me now. Yeah, I, I'm glad that I'll repeat. I'll rewind. I'm glad that Tom explained to us how and why he got to Boca, because I just thought maybe he was a man ahead of his time, and he turned 65 prematurely when it's the law that you have to move. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm I'm surprised, Tom. You may not have uh, uh, yelled at that producer that hey, 
Don't tell me what to do. I've recorded at Abbey Road, damn it. You can't do that to me. He was such a cool guy, and I just didn't have a good sense of the fact that even though I was not an AFTRA member, um, you're allowed one free outing, I think it was. And so you would get paid after rates for that. And I I was blessed because the um the client was blockbuster. Normally, you know, you would make 30 grand for singing a few sentences, but but in the case of Blockbuster, God bless AFTRA, um Blockbuster has new movies like every two weeks or had new movies, right? So every time they changed the voiceover in the middle to say, this week, Blockbuster, um, that constituted a new use of the music and we'd get another check. So I'd go out in the mailbox and there'd be a check for 150. Then, you know, there'd be a check for 400, then a check for 800, then for four. And that, that went on for eight months and it was just nonstop almost every day, more checks. And it was, it was from Rich saying, get out in the studio. You don't understand what's going on here. So um, I I am forever thankful for him and recently ran into him on the internet and thanked him yet again because we've been here 28 28 years. Uh, My wife and I lived in a bunch of apartments down here for years and had a chance to get a house and um, that money from Blockbuster did it. So I, you know, my life continues to be blessed. I don't know. Well, good for you. I mean, the guys from the circle made a ton of money uh, recording uh, jingles. Did they? Yeah, they did plop plop fizz fizz. That was them. Oh my gosh! Yeah, they did one. The, a couple of the guys, not the whole uh, team, not the whole band, but yes, they made some uh, some fantastic money. But you're probably listening, wondering why is Tom Hartman on our show? Well, I think that's probably one of the most unique stories uh, in the world of quote-unquote my Beatles story as we call certain segments on our podcast a phrase that was coined by uh, our Beatles professor David Gallant Tom at just 17 years old uh, you recorded a album's worth of material at Abbey Road Studios you were a young musician in a band Uh, you were in a band called the Aravons yes and um, and your mom uh, managed you, if yes. I re- recall correctly. And she's the one that said, you know, Tom, you need to write your own songs. Yeah. And uh, she might not be very good with a camera, but nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> and I will tell everyone, I'll tell everyone who's listening that there is a part one of our conversation. You can find it uh, amongst all the podcast episodes, part one with Tom Hartman. And, and here we are with part two. And. And so you found yourself in this band called the Aravons, and you did pretty well, considering the fact that you were, you know, 17. Yeah, we were, uh, we were a popular band in St. Louis because uh, St. Louis was kind of an R&B town. So it had it, its claim to fame, among others, was Bob Cuban with the Cheater and, you know, and. It it was like a it was very much the case that you would go to a, a a dance or something where there was a live band and the band would be doing more stuff like the Buckinghams or the Outsiders or that kind of stuff for Wilson Pickett or whatever and we were we were you know completely Brit invasion band so with tons of Beatles tons of Bee Gees and the Who and um, just anything British we loved. 
And um, so we got to be real popular in St. Louis, but we had basically kind of, you know, and we kept going, gosh, if we could only get in this club. And then my mom would get us in there and then we'd be in there. We were finally like, God, we'd like played everywhere. We played it at uh, the seventh inning stretch in Bush Stadium. So we got to know what it felt like to be where the Beatles were when we saw them at Bush Stadium. <laughs> so we were right out there on second base. And I was looking at it, thousands of people going, wow. So this is what it's like. Wow. This is what they saw that night. And, um, you know, we just didn't have much left to do it at that point. My mom was a great business person. She could talk people into anything, um, getting in anyway, getting into somebody. And, uh, so she was learning the music business, um, you know, by rope. She had a big book called this business of music, which is like this classic book on it. And so she was learning it. She, she did. In fact, John, she'd come in and say, you know, from, from what I'm picking up, you guys got to write something or cover something or do something original. And we've got to get a demo done of it. So, you know, go write something. So all of a sudden I'm like, I've never read this song in my life. I'm like, what? What? I don't know. I just, so, you know, I came up with this song and um, we, I said it needs strings, really. It should have strings in it. And we got in touch with Bob Cuban, who put us in touch with a local arranger who wrote a cello part and put us in touch with some uh, woman who played cello. And we recorded, uh, got a few hundred bucks together, ran down to a studio in St. Louis and recorded the demo. And um, long, long story short was that the studio called us about a week later. They were a couple old guys that were used to just, you know, I don't know what they recorded, but they they said, hey, uh, you know, you were in here a couple of weeks ago doing your demo and um Capitol Records has a distributor here in St. Louis and the guy from the distributor dropped by, you know, we're friends with him. And he said, what have you been doing? He said, oh, we recorded a local band. I just came out pretty nice, played it for him. And the, he said, the guy's going to call you. He thinks that, you know, you should be heard by somebody out of Capitol. And um, like an idiot, you know, I, I was just Sometimes I just shudder when I look back at some of the stuff I've said and done. I, I said, I don't, I don't want to record a capital. It's more like, and I love them to death, but I said, that's more like Beach Boy stuff. I, I want to record it in England. And um, the guy called and um, he thought it, we were talented. He said, uh, there's somebody I'd like you to, to play this for and get touch with in LA. And my mom relayed that to him that I wanted to record in England. He was a little taken aback and he said, well, if that's the case, then you should get in touch with a man named Roy Featherstone at EMI. He's a guy who later signed Queen. He's in that Queen movie signing them. Um, and that's, that's how we ended up at EMI. We, we got some money together, which we didn't have. We were a normal kind of middle-class or below middle-class economic economically family we had a we had some friends invest some money to get us over there we took this little stupid demo that we did in St. Louis over there and went to EMI and uh we saw a guy first somebody named John something and he was a young guy and listened to like 30 seconds of it he said okay I'll call Roy and we went upstairs Matt Roy Featherstone he puts it on 
listens to the whole thing and he goes, I would do a single on that. I would do a single on that. So that's how it happened. It was, it was right out of a 19, bad 1950s rock and roll movie, you know, stuff that doesn't happen. Well, I will say, Tom, kudos to your mom. Professor, Tom's mom kind of sounds like Mona Best uh, booking uh, the, the Beatles in the very early days. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's a, yeah, that, that's a whole world unto itself. But uh, the role of, I uh, wouldn't be a stage mother or studio mom. <laughs> studio. Uh, yeah, it can be the best of times and it can be the most challenging of times. Yes. I was I was just listening to one of Tom's songs, Me and My Bomb. But yeah. My Bomb, and I couldn't help but thinking, geez, me and my mom. But that's true. <laughs> 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 that's off the recent release from last year. Yeah. Exactly, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, although it has that sort of feeling. Oh yeah, definitely. I think they all do, and it's not intentional. It's just the way it's my vintage coming out when I <laughs> go to write a song. The last thing I think of is put, let's put a hip hop beat to this. So, um, you know, uh, it, it was it was very very much of of fantasy come true, and when he said you know, I'll do a single on this. That's what he meant, really. Um, but as we stayed over there a few days, um, I think um, it was either then or later. I don't know what happened. I don't know why fax machines weren't used or whatever, but sometime later, a few months later, I had to fly back over with my mom to do official contract signing. And that's when they said, look, um, you know, we'll have you back in March. This was probably November of 68, somewhere around there. And he said, I want you to go home. I want you guys to write all winter. I just want you to get as much stuff together as you can. And when you come back here, we'll see what goes on. And that's what we did. We got a really lousy little tape recorder, put it in our basement. We knew nothing about recording. We just like plugged got Y Y connectors, anything we could do to get multiple mics in the stupid thing. And we just stayed up till three in the morning, every night recording and writing songs all that winter. And we ended up going back in March of 69. We had this awful little basement tape with us. And um, we went in to record World of You. But before we did, they said, you know, we've, we've been listening to this tape. Why don't you go ahead and record this, this, and they picked a couple to go ahead and gave us the go ahead to do. So that's when they put us with Norman Smith and um, we went into the studio and did a few tunes and then we would, they would cut an acetate of what you had done that day and you would bring it down to EMI house in Manchester square, the office building, and you would bring it down to show Roy Featherstone um, what we'd been doing at the studio that week. And he, you know, he'd listen and nod his head and go, that sounds great. Listen to why you're recording this week. We were listening to a few others. We, you know, we suggest you go do these two. So he finally went on and on till they said, just finish now, just do the law, do, do an album. So that's how that happened. So we ended up running out of, we're running out of money. And because of that, I think that's where the Beatle connection really came in. Um, we told them we didn't have much. We couldn't just stay here for six months doing an album. We needed more than a couple nights a week or a couple days a week at Abbey Road. And they said, okay, we'll accelerate your schedules. So they put us in there all the time. So 
when you're in there all the time and the Beatles are recording Abbey Road, you're going to run into them. And that's what happened with us. And we ended up, you know, seeing them constantly. It was, it just, we were just like numb by the end of it. You walked down the hall and Ringo would walk by or somebody walked by. Or, and I remember that distinctly one day, all four of them walking toward me and walking by. It's, it, you know, for a kid who was watching the Ed Sullivan show, not eating his dinner, just staring at the screen and just marveling over what I was seeing to, to, to walk by all four of them and pull George aside like a dummy and ask him guitar questions. It was, you know, it was unreal. Wow. I mean, that is amazing. Now, in part one of our conversation, we talked about your interactions with Mal Evans, with George, uh, running into Paul at a nightclub, talking to him. Uh, you walking by the studio and overhearing them working on a particular song. Yeah. Let's, let's pick it up from there. First of all, I'm a big fan of Norman Smith, Norman Hurricane Smith. I love yes. <laughs> One of my favorite songs is Babe, What Would You great, Say? It's a cool song. Uh, it's a great song. And yeah, yeah. Uh, on my radio show, I have played in the past the time Norman sang that song on the Johnny Carson show. Oh, you're kidding Oh, yeah, yeah. He was on the Johnny Carson show singing that that track with, uh, you know, with Doc and the band playing it a little Vegas style. You got to check that out. It's out oh, there. Yeah. I can hear that. In it. Uh, so let's start with Hurricane Norman Smith, who John called Normal Smith. Right? Yes, I remember. <laughs> so uh, and and Professor certainly uh, butt in whenever you would like. And uh, but tell me, uh, tell us and our listeners your recollections of Norman Hurricane Normal Smith. Well, uh, Norman Smith, you know, you have to understand, even though I was an insane Beatles fan, I was a Beatles fan musically and their chord progressions and guitars and what they're doing. I didn't, we didn't have the information we do today. So the average person didn't know who Norman Smith was, and that included us. So, you know, he was just assigned to be our producer. And we said, hello, Mr. Smith. Didn't know a thing about him. And um, we, at one point, um, were, I think I was in a cutting room. I really can't remember. But one of the guys at EMI said, well, you're certainly teamed up for your, your, your very Beatles group. You're certainly teamed up with the right guy. And I was like, what he said, Norman, Norman says, you, you realize he's been the engineer on all of the records up to revolver. Right. And I, I just stepped out, died because we'd already been recording for like a month with him. I he's just this guy. And, um, when we realized, I still remember when we realized that we were in the canteen and he had come into, we were just eating a sandwich or something. He's, he sat down and I said, Norman, you were the engineer on all the Beatles stuff. So yeah, yeah. He's like, he's the nicest guy. He's a real nice guy. And I said, okay. So I immediately started, we all started with the trivia. I said, Norman, do you realize I'm looking through you? How did that happen with this false start on it? And uh, cause you know, the false start on the stereo version of rubber soldiers of false start, the guitar starts twice. The American version. Yeah. yeah. And, and on the mono it's cleaned up. And I told him that because now I had no idea. It must have been a cutting room mistake. And I said, you didn't know? And he said, no, he had no idea. Um, 
So um, I remember saying to him, um, there's a little bit of trivia that we, Mike and I, my drummer and I had always wondered. I said, Norman, in no reply, when they say, I saw the light, you hear Ringo hit a big crash cymbal and it stops. But he continues playing. He's playing the hat and all that, but the crash cymbal, which I later realized was overdubbed and muted by his hand. I said, it just stops. I saw the light and it stops like that. Is that how did you, why did the crash symbol just stop? And he said, again, he was like, no, I, I don't remember anything special about that. And I said, okay, I'll try one more thing. What about I want to hold your hand? I said, how, what, what was going on with those guitars? He said, well, they played very loud. And he, I said, were, was, how, I was it anything special? And he said, no, just mics. I, I still remember the day he said mics were about six feet from the amps, I guess, because they were so loud. Nowadays, they put a mic right on the speaker cone in the, in the studio, which is, I don't know. I, I'm not a fan, and neither is Alan Parsons. He sees no point in that. You back it off and give it a little bit of the room. Give it a little bit of tone. That's why you can hear those guitars ringing up like they do, and you can't do that. You can hear the whole studio, too, in that song because it's just loud, and the mics are backed off the amps. But uh, that kind of stuff aside, Norman was extremely creative. Um, we had a song on the album called Bessie Goodhart, which was just a comic, fun song, and it needed um, – uh, it, it needed something to fill a break in the middle of it. And there was some xylophone, there was a xylophone in the studio. And I said, that would sound great. But I said, I don't know how to play it. And he goes, I'll take care of that. And he slowed the tape down to half speed and he played a uh, xylophone solo. You can listen to Bessie Goodhart. It's real cool. And so he was always coming up with neat ideas. Um, but what happened was he also had a girlfriend. Um, and what we were noticing was when the girlfriend was at the studio, we would record for an hour and he'd go, well, that's good. We got a lot done tonight. And we were looking at each other like, we're not even in tune yet. What do you mean? We're done for the night. And, um, you know, we started feeling like he was a lot more interested in talking to the girl who was sitting at the console next to him for most of the session. And that was a little frustrating for us. Um, and it all culminated in um, an epic event on um, the song World of You, which got assigned. And it had an orchestra and it had a bunch of strings in it. And um, it was recorded um, to our rhythm track, which was piano, bass, and drums. And I was playing piano. And at one point in the song, the rhythm track stops and it's up to me to keep the time going, playing on piano, quarter notes, one, two, three, right? And I'm just not playing in time. I kind of slowed down a little bit and, you know, you wouldn't notice it with the vocal over it, but there's no vocal on it yet, right? Now this string session is there with all these stuffy British <laughs> string players and, um, they're playing in time, man. They're not messing around. So they get to that point, and even though the piano's kind of slowing down, string players are bump, 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 right on time. And it grinds for a few seconds. It's like, woo. And uh, that was that. We took that acetate, as per usual, down to Roy that that next day or so. He wanted to hear how the string session go. And he was tapping his foot, listening to World of You back, and he, it got to that part. 
And he got a frown on his face and he said, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, what's happening here? What's happening? And I said, I know, I know. I told him, I, I told him, I, I shouldn't have said that, but it was true. I said, it's, it's, it's a mess there. And I said, well, you know, he said, well, what do we do about that? I said, there's nothing you can do. Norman didn't want to redo it. It's just, you know, I don't know. He said, can you fix that? And I said, I would have, have the strings back. Yeah. And he said, you can fix it though. If we get the strings back. And I said, absolutely. And, um, I don't know. I was just very confident. I, I don't, I don't know where that came from about the music part, but I was, I knew I could fix it. And so they had a little powwow at EMI offices and they said, okay, we're going to bring the strings back and, and see what you can do with this. And Norman, I don't think Norman was on the session and it was just me and engineers and Johnny Arthie, the guy that conducted them. And I just thought it was real simple. I went out to the string players this 17 year old kid from all these string players. And I said, guys, you did a beautiful job myself. Less so I slowed down on the piano and I really want you guys to listen to the track closely and see if you can, you know, adjust to what I'm doing there because it was my mistake. And, um, we just, we just think if you listen to it a couple of times, we can fix this. And they did, they fixed it. Um, and brought it back to EMI and Roy said, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And, um, he said, how would you feel about going ahead and producing the rest of the album? And I said, I would love to be great. <laughs> and so my, to get back to your original question, Norman came to me at some point that week and said, uh, they let him go off the project. And he said, I'm, I'm just, you know, just wondering what happened or why. And I, you know, truthfully, I don't really remember what I told him. I, I didn't want to offend him. I said, oh, yeah, no, I just, you know, we, I think I said some words to the effect of we've been working with these songs all, all winter. We know them inside now. In fact, I've got demos um, of them on that old tape. And they're pretty much like they are on the album. They sound horrible, but the arrangements are the same. And the playing is pretty much the same. So they were pretty well planned out. And when I said that to him, I said, I think we, you know, we kind of know what we want to do. And EMI just was gracious, gracious enough to say, well, go ahead and you can finish it. And Norman's, Norman's busy anyway. He's doing Pink Floyd. So, you know, um, that, that was our parting with him. And, and I don't remember anything else, but our time with him was pleasant. He was a jokester. He was very good spirits all, all the time. Um, I remember one little Beatle trivia with him that we were doing some background harmonies and, um, I said, yeah, but it would need to be four part in that part to make that go like that. And Norman said, well, I could sing that part. And, and we were like, no, we don't want the old guy singing harmony parts on our record. You know, we didn't say that, but I know that's what we were thinking. And he saw us hesitate. And he said, I've done it with the Beatles, you know, I've sung backgrounds with them, which I don't think he did, but he did say that and he knew we're Beatle fans. So maybe he thought that would convince us that we work something else out. But yeah, there was always, oh, it was always an adventure with Norman. He was a great guy, but I think between the big mistake he made with the strings on World of You and costing me my money to have him come in and then having a 17 year old fix a mistake they felt he should have been able to. Okay. An unbelievable Chachi, 
Chachi, uh, yeah, a couple things that for our audience, you know, those who've, you know, followed the Beatles or tried to do a little bit of uh, background work. And even when I'm uh, working with uh, my students, you know, there are plenty of stories, of course, of not so much the battles, but, you know, the musicians union in England is pretty strong. And it is no no mean feat to just get a string section back again to do something, right? And that's quite a bit of time and investment. So, you know, uh, that that quite was something for our listeners to understand. And, of course, the kicker is Tom had the great Norman Smith kicked off of his album. Actually, <laughs> I didn't mean to. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but it's much funnier that it sounds that way. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, wow, what uh, what cheek is the Brits would say of a 17-year-old? Right? It, it, it was, and it was purely unintentional, but it was really, uh, truly, honestly, I can tell you, driven by the the fact that I really felt like I knew what I was doing. I just did. I just knew what I, I knew. Okay. Maybe I didn't know. I didn't have the knowledge. Someone like Norman Smith knows, but I knew what I wanted these songs to sound like. And even when we were recording, she's not dead. The piano part to that. And Jeff Emmerich was engineering on that. Um, Wow. We came back. Yeah. Jeff did about half the album and Jeff Jarrett, um, did, was engineer on uh, on the rest of it. Jeff was always busy on Abbey Row with them, but whenever we could get him, we he would just you know he would just show up, and one of the two of them would be engineering your session. And Jeff ended up being he was a big fan of our group for some reason. He told my mom he said this you know Tom is extremely talented, all this stuff, and he was really nice. He's like the most quiet, laid back gentleman. You know, very soft-spoken guy. But even as I said, I had such a strong vision when I wanted on stuff that even when we did "She's Not Dead," we recorded bass, drums, and piano, so it was traditional. Listen to that rhythm track, and Jeff came down, and um, I said, "Jeff, I I want the piano to sound like more like Lady Madonna. It's just it doesn't sound strong. It just you know it's fine, but how did, how do you make that?" He said, all right, all right, all right, let's do it again. This time I want you to play much louder, okay? Play much harder. And we did another take. And it was it was like Lady Matata when it came out. He just used compression on it. He smashed it with compressors. And, you know, the louder you're playing, the harder the compressor is working. So, you know, it made the piano just kick ass. So it was wow. great. But, yeah, I had that kind of, you know, so I... I never like played the guitar part and said, oh, no, maybe this sounds good. I said, no, it's got to be on the trouble pickups. It's got to be. I said, we we just kind of had a vision of what we wanted. So, well, I, I will tell you, Tom, for you to to be in that mindset at the age of 17, where you knew what you wanted and you're at Abbey Road Studios. Yeah, but Brian Wilson had that and Todd Runger and a lot of really talented people. I mean, you're, you know, I don't know how to do anything else. Somebody says, put up some shelves. I'm like, what? Well, it's all I know how to do, and I'm not always right, but I usually have a pretty strong feeling um, for what I want. If it doesn't sound good, I'm the first person to go, boy, was that stupid. Let me try this. You know, I just want it to sound good. My goal in doing anything that I record um, is that I want it to end up sounding like something I would buy. I remember the feeling as a kid of hearing Little Deuce Coop, of hearing Crying in the Rain, of hearing, you know, 
any of those records or Young World by Rick Nelson. I almost killed my parents if they wouldn't take me that night to go get Young World because it had this insane guitars solo in the middle of it that I loved, kind of a precursor to Nowhere Man solo. And um, and I I just you know I like. I love it when a record does that to me. I just have to have that. Nowadays, it's yeah. stupid. You just download it in five seconds. But, you know, getting in the car and going there and finding that when I got to Sears in 1960, I guess it was late 63 when I went all your hands showed up in stores in St. Louis. I know it was on the radio anyway. When we got to Sears, there was one copy left. I got it. Wow. And I still have it. And, and I just want my anything that I do. I don't want to do anything to just, you can listen to it and yeah, that's good. I, I hate that stuff. It's gotta be something. I was like, what is that song? I love that song. You know, I, I have to get that record. And um, that's, that's, I don't know. It's just like a passion. We're going to take a quick break here as we hear from another podcast that you'll be interested in, particularly if you're a fan of eighties music. Past 10's a top 10 time machine. Past 10's a top 10 time machine. The podcast where we go back in time. We'll go back that week in history. And we look at the top 10 songs from the Billboard charts. We analyze. This is 80's with gobs of oozy cheese. And sometimes we criticize. What the f*** were we thinking? With your hosts, Milton Dave. Find us at timemachinepod.com or search for Past 10's anywhere you find your podcasts. It's actually great. Now, Professor, I just want to say we have the most fantastic executive producer. I call him the executive, executive, executive producer. <laughs> He's that good. Keep he going. has come up with the uh, Hurricane Norman Smith appearance oh, cool. on Johnny Carson. Oh, got to see screen it. There. Got to see it. And have I a hope or have the chance to even ask if I could dance with you? You would you agree to be on my light theater to wait? Would there something be sunshine on a cold and rainy days? Oh, babe, what would you say? That is hysterical. Oh, damn. There he is. There he is, yeah. There he is, Tom. Yeah, with, with much, much longer hair than when I knew him. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's fantastic. And I love that song. Oh, I yeah, love, great song. I love some of those, uh, you know, sugar-coated slightly songs. And, you know, listen, and I say that with all due respect because I love that track. But, you know, Norman also had a lot to do with Pink Floyd. Oh, well, yeah, he was, was, he wanted to, wasn't either producer or engineer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. right. But and I know uh, he left, he said he left Revolve, uh, before Revolver because he wanted to do more, whatever, wanted to do something else. So, um, I don't know how you go from the Beatles to anything else, but he did. So, <laughs> I mean, how do you walk away from the Beatles? But let's, let's talk about, uh, the next uh, the next person that we the next beetle we didn't talk about in part one yeah. and and again i see we usually see each other i'm usually in the studio with yeah. professor but we're in separate locations so professor raise your hand if you if you have uh any kind of questions or comments imagine me telling the professor to raise his hand but uh tom tell us about any interactions you had with john lennon well um 
I could have sworn I may have discussed that in the first time, but it's a favorite story of mine because it was it was it was rare that you could access John because he was literally with Yoko every second to the point of if he if he went in the bathroom, she waited, leaned up against the wall outside and waited for him to come back. So they were inseparable. And it was a little sad one time in 68 when I was over there. I think it was 68. Yeah. I need David to check my dates on this. But the, when they recorded Ballad of Jonah and Yoko, um, I remember Paul following John down the hall. John and Yoko were in front of him. Paul was trying to talk to John, like from in back of him. So it was like that. So you didn't really have a, you didn't really have this feeling, oh, I'll just walk up to John and start talking to him. So I didn't. Um, I almost knocked Yoko over once because I was running down the hall and made a sharp right to go down the steps. And she was coming up the steps, carrying a tray of tea and cookies. And I stopped and I said, Oh, hi, Yoko. And she goes, hello. And just walked on like nothing. She seemed to be pleasant enough. Um, oh, we lost video here. No, no, we're going. Oh, see, see, our executive there you go. Executive Thank producer you. Yeah. Yeah. up stuff for us to look at. Okay. So it would have been, um, yeah, that would have been one of the nights um, that, oh, yeah. Okay. Now I know what night that was. Yeah, exactly. I know what night that was. That was a night when we were set to record, but we couldn't get in yet because I believe I'm pretty sure it was Pink Floyd that was still in studio too. And they were wrapping things up. So we were sitting out in front on the couch and um, Paul and John were in recording Ballad of John and Yoko, which of course, we didn't know it was Ballad of John and Yoko. We just would every once in a while hear a little bit as a control room door open. But Paul came out of the studio and you had to studio. That was done in Studio 3. They had, at the time, you couldn't get into the control room from the studio in Studio 3. You had to leave Studio 3, walk a few steps down the hall, and then open a door to go in the control room. So we're sitting on the in the front lounge on the couch. Paul comes out of Studio 3 and kind of looks at us, smiles, kind of nods his head. We said, hi. He said, hi. Went in the control room. Goes back in the studio. We're still waiting to get in Studio 2. He comes out again, walks back to the control room, looks at us and stops, points his finger at us and goes, not going to say hi this time. (laughs) So we all burst out laughing. He was just like he was in hell. He's just funny. John, my John story is, is pretty silly, but, um, I had broken, I got a short in my guitar cable in studio too one day. And, uh, we kept all of our gear in the same room. The Beatles did. They had a room across the hall. I've got a million pictures to this and, um, they've been used in a couple books, the Beatles gear and, and, um, recording the Beatles. There's, um, we kept our stuff in their room. So I went up the steps to go in to that room and see we had a spare guitar cable. And Mike, our drummer, was standing kind of just outside Studio 2's control room. And I said, I gotta get a cable. And Mike and I are always kidding with each other. And Mike says, 
why don't you go ask Lennon? He's right down the hall. You could ask him to borrow one like that. And I look down the hall and John and Yoko, John has got his arm up against a wall and Yoko's beneath his arm and they're talking. It's, they're maybe 25 feet down the hall. And I, I just wanted to fake Mike out. I just wanted to kid him. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, I'll go ask him. So I turned left and I started walking down the hall and I'm getting closer and closer to John with my intention to be, I'm just going to keep walking and walk by him and fake Mike out. But my plans were foiled. As I got closer to him, I hear John go, just a minute, just a minute. And he looks up at me. Now I feel like a total jerk. And I just start blathering like an idiot and said, um, John, we're recording a studio too. And I just broke a guitar cable and we keep all of our stuff in the same room as you do. And I just wondered if it would be okay if we borrowed a guitar cable. And he goes, do you know Mal or Kevin? And I said, yeah. And he said, go tell him. I said, it was okay. And I said, thank you. And he said, sure. And to look back at Yoko, started talking again. I like ran back down the hall John's and my Mike said, what are you doing? I said, I couldn't help it. He looked up straight at me. What was it? Was so, Tom, Tom, look at this, Tom. You got to see this. Now, I, in, in my office here, I'm filled with, you see Beetle books everywhere, but look what yeah. I have in my hand. There you go. And, yeah. and there we are. are. There's the equipment room, and there's me holding John's 12-string Rickenbacker. That's not the Rickenbacker used on Ed Sullivan. That's his 12-string, which I believe was only used on every little thing. I'm not positive. But, um, yes, that, and that's me with the stunned look on my face. Like, <laughs> what the hell is going on? And it on? says it right here. It's yeah. Erevon's guitarist. They don't say your name. Yeah. Posing with John's Rickenbacker, 25. Yeah, crazy. crazy. Isn't that crazy? So we could go in there at any time and see all their gear. And we took pictures of it, and and uh, we opened Ringo's trap case. Mike Mike wanted to see what he had in his drum case, and and instead of having a thousand drum utilities, it was filled with Fender light gauge rock and roll strings for some reason. And uh, yeah, so um, it was that room that I later went in, and Kevin, uh, David or you might know his last name, the guy with red hair that's writing ran on the roof and let it be. Like, that's right. Holding yeah. up the lyrics, right? Yeah. And he was um, in the Beatles equipment room. And I said, Kevin, can we um, borrow a, a guitar cable from you? And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm busy at the moment. I said, oh, okay. It's, it's all right. I, I asked John. He said to ask for you. And he said, John said it was okay. And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, hold on grabs me a cable and hands it to me right away wow. so, um yeah yes you know my, our, it's so unfortunately a very long story short that was my only interaction with john but and, well know. we do have uh david galan professor go ahead well chachi i don't want to steal your thunder but can i ask the question of tom that i know is on your mind uh, please tom did you give the cable back or did I, you put it I, back did you put it back in the trap room or find kevin or val and say please 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 put this back because you just you just felt the earth shake basically because uh, uh, Kevin Harrington had you know asked if you know you said John said it was okay and incredulously he said John said it was okay and yeah he did as if as if you know did God say it was all right for you to do yeah. this and you said yes and then of course the cable magically appeared it, but it magically appeared very quickly Kevin was it returned uh, I would have returned it. there's no reason I would have stolen it. it's not you know it's just 
uh, we took, um, what did we end up? I'd like to remind you, Senator, you are under oath. Yes, and I also will tell you, Tom, that would be worth a lot of money today if you kept it. Oh, I know. Well, I didn't have George's pick. I did take a pick out of his last fall case, the last fall that you see him on the Smothers Brothers show with and so forth. Um, I opened the case just to see what it was because uh, we were kids. We were just like in fantasy land. And, and so we would, we would go in there for something for ourselves. And, and, you know, the first time we went in there, it was hysterical because we had been told, just put your, put your gear in room, whatever it was called. And we did, and we paid no attention to it. It was only like two times in that one of us looked up and said, those are, those are, there's like four Rickenbacker cases. That's a Hofner case. Do you? Oh my God. And we realized it was, that's where they kept their stuff. So whenever we could, um, when it was late at night or whatever, we'd open up their case. That's how he took that picture of me holding him and stuff. Billy would stand by, uh, stand guard. One of us would stand guard by the door and say, don't let us know somebody's coming. Just take a picture real quick. So we would take a couple of pictures and put it back. Um, and when I opened the Les Paul case, um, he had a guitar pick stuck between the strings and I took it and I have it. Now, now, you know, I don't know if, if uh, you recall this story, Professor, but uh, I think Yoko had, I mean, George had words with Yoko because Yoko took a cookie out of his guitar case. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard <laughs> something about that. Yeah, I took can't play a guitar with a cookie, but you yes. took a pick, you know? Right. Let's, let, let's keep the idiomatic expressions correct. It was a biscuit. Yes. And it was a biscuit. <laughs> it was a biscuit. And yes, it, it was... Uh, it, it was, in fact, it was one of the special biscuits that wasn't digested. So it was basically, uh, I think, something that was uh, also therapeutic. Ah, I, perhaps you would have gotten away with taking the biscuit, Tom, because you weren't Yoko. But who knows? <laughs> you never know. But that's that's probably what was on that tray she was carrying when I almost ran <laughs> off. Well, Chachi, I love the image of of like you know basically these these kids uh, sneaking in the parents' closet where they sit. Uh, and, uh, you know, taking the guitar out, taking pictures, that's, that's worth a little play vignette in and of itself, you know? Um, yeah, we were beholding the objects of great. <laughs> we were pretty stupid, you know, and we could have gotten thrown off the label probably for that. But, um, I do remember once the, um, the cutting engineer, one of the cutting engineers there, um, telling us, um, that, um, we should just be cool around them. And he said, if you are, cause I had made some remark like, gosh, they're, they're so normal. There's like guys walking around the building. And he said, yeah, they are. And he said, if you're just cool, Bill, you'll, you'll be fine. He said, just, you know, where you'll get in trouble if you, is if you start bugging them, he said, all of a sudden you will find that your recording schedule is rearranged and you are never there when they are. Uh, uh, we were very cool with them, but you know, we really didn't, you almost didn't have to be. It's I, it's like, I told you, uh, Chachi on the, on the first show, it, it was like the scene in help, you know, just the way they was before they was, it was just like kids walked around and, um, Paul, Paul was extremely gracious. Um, 
George was extremely funny, which was the biggest surprise of our trip. I just thought he was going to be sour old dour George, um, especially with that first remark he made when I told him to come on down. He looked out and said, are you with a magazine? And I was so glad to be able to say, no, we're just going to be recording here. Mal's giving us a tour. And he went, oh, okay. And we were like, what does oh, okay mean? He's coming down the steps. So. Uh. Um, yeah, uh, Paul was just like, I mean, he was, he went out of his way to be super polite, just really not even to, I think I mentioned there was a groupie in there in 68 watching the night I saw him do your blues and some girl had snuck in the front door. I don't know how she got back there, but, um, once they had stopped recording your blues and Paul, when it, it came out of the control room for a minute to kind of say like, who are these people out in the hallway? I just took off. Like I had somewhere to go and she just stood there. And I heard, as I was walking away, I heard him going, yeah, but you see, like, you know, we're trying to work. And like, if you're trying to work and people, you know, it's hard to, you know, he, he could have said, get out of here. Who are you? You know, he could have been a real jerk. John could have said to me, he could have said, can you see I'm busy talking to Yoko here? And they could have at any moment been jerks and they just, you know, yeah. John stops and says, do you know Mal or Kevin? He didn't have to do that. He, he could have said, no, I don't have a cable. Yeah. See ya. Well, well, I will tell you, Tom, we are fast running out of time. We're just about at an hour. And, uh, but, uh, professor, any last comments or questions? Well, I, I, uh, I think that this does really kind of, um, uh, round off, if you will, um, those great experiences that Tom had. And I think he, he gave us and our audience a bit more extra color and depth to what seemingly were brief interactions with the Beatles, but profound at the same time. And I'm sure that that okay. you lo- We're losing you again, Professor. Well, I, I do think that the groupie, she must have snuck in through the bathroom. Uh, yeah, go to bed. I don't know. There were always people outside trying to get in. There were always girls out by the gate and all that stuff. But maybe the gate opened and one flew in. I don't know. But um, uh, it, at any rate, for like I said, a kid who was uh, a, a insane fan over them to just you know a matter of what three years. I mean, at sixty five, I was in a movie theater watching Help, and three years later. You know, I'm talking to him in the hallways. It's, you know, I, I was very blessed. It's, I was very blessed. God bless me. And it has for my entire life, really. And it was, um, yeah, they were brief encounters um, other than the converse. Now, Paul and George, I talked to for good enough amount of time to make a fool of myself. But, um, you know, I, 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 I can't, couldn't be more blessed. And I speak for probably any Beatles fan who ever lived um, that believe me, I felt <laughs> the same way you would have felt doing that. I, I was, I was nobody special. I was just, you know, there was a part of me that was a professional being hired to record there or being signed to record there. The other part of me was the kid watching help. So, um, you know, and it's hard to do both, but we tried to be cool, you know. Yeah, it's like the cereal. One side's frosted, your kid's side, and the other side <laughs> is for the adult in you. Uh, but true. what a story. Tom Hartman, we've been speaking to from the original band, Erevons. And Tom, thanks for coming back for round two with us. Thanks for, for having me back. And there'll be some, uh, there's some developments in the 
in the works here for Airbus. So maybe you'd come back and see when those take form. If they do in the next couple of months, uh, there should be some real good news for for Airbus fans, of which there is somewhat of a cult around the world. I, mean, I will tell you, we will be here and ready for you when you want to come back on and come on my radio show too, New England's Breakfast with the Beatles. We'd love to have you on. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much, you guys. Thank you, David, um, for all your input and and for giving your your uh, life to to teaching this fabulous group to youngsters who don't know them, perhaps, or need to know more about them. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, thank you, Tom. And I always bring it to them that I've been uh, fortunate enough to meet people like yourself. Thank you. Now, before, before we go, Tom, do you ever go outside down there? Is it very, very hot? It's, it's even as we speak, just like 97 feels like 100. It's awful. I'm sitting here. At my computer, looking out the picture window in the living room, saying, I'm glad I'm inside. It's really bad, like it is everywhere. Yeah. Well, it, it should be shifting soon as August gets in here, and you should be getting really nice weather down. Yeah, we should be heading into hurricane season. Oh, that's right. But listen, it's been Thank it's you. truly a pleasure to call you a friend. We love you, Tom. And let's not, uh, and I apologize, we won't wait so long in between catching up with you, and we're always here for you. Tom Hartman. Thank you so much, Toshi. Do you want to give a website or anything, anything for people? And then I, I think websites went out of style and I don't have one. I used to have one. I don't anymore. Um, I refer people to the, the, on the another planet music website, which is you know, the label in charge of the, there you go. the current release. That's great. Tom, God bless you and your family. Be well. Thank Professor, you. you're the best. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Chachi. Always a pleasure. And David Yaz, the uh, the founder and tra- entrepreneur of the Boston Podcast Network. There you go. And uh, and you want to plug your podcast, David? Yes, my pleasure, Chach. Uh, after you get done listening to all the episodes of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi and David, take a listen to Past Tens. Go to timemachinepod.com. And it's a great music nostalgia podcast. And you can start by listening to one that Chachi and David appeared on. It is, the, it is the most listened to episode ever in the history of the Boston podcast. <laughs> yeah, awesome. as far as you know. Yes. Yeah, as far as I know. Yeah. So listen, David Yaz, thank you. Professor David Galan, Beatles professor, I should say, at Suffolk University in Boston. Thank you. And our guest today, Tom Hartman. What a pleasure, Tom. You have such great stories and such memories. And uh, I am I am uh, I'm envious of your interactions with the Beatles. It, it's great speaking yeah. with you. It's always great speaking with someone who has a passion. And I know you do and David does all of you guys do. So it's, it's really a pleasure to share with and it. You, I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. And you're listening to Get Back to the Beatles. My name is Chachi LaPrette. You can hear my show Breakfast with the Beatles called New England's Breakfast with the Beatles, I should say, in Boston, New Hampshire, and Maine. And uh, if you are going to school as a freshman and you want to go to Suffolk University, you have the opportunity to take David Gallant's Beatles course. Right, David? Absolutely. Okay. And that does it for today. Thank you for listening to Get Back to the Beatles. Have a good one. Get back, Jojo. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.